0: I invite you to take them out and turn to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's page 986 if you're um, using the Pew Bible this morning, 986. We're going to start at uh, chapter 2 verse 17 and read through 3, 5 in a moment. Now last week I shared with you all uh, one of the main complaints that you'll hear from pastors about the work of being a pastor and this week what I want to share with you is one of the main complaints that I hear from Christians uh, who aren't pastors, uh, primarily about the church, uh, one of the things that you'll hear Christians say very often is, you know, uh, I don't really like church very much because I don't get very much out of it. Uh, or they'll say things like, you know, I can really get a lot out of just being with by myself in nature on a deer stand. Something along uh, those lines. Uh, and every now and then I'll share... Um, I'll share uh, this story with you. I was driving in the car and I, I and this car passed me and in the back of the car they had a bumper sticker um, and the bumper sticker said, uh, nature is my church. and And for a moment I thought about that and I thought, how terrible is it that nature would be your church? Because do you all know how cruel nature is? <laughs> nature lives by the law of, you know, the big ones eat the little ones. I mean, that's pretty much it. And if nature is your church, it tells you a lot about what people think. You know, there isn't grace or mercy in nature. So anyway, that's beside the point. That's, that's one of the things you'll hear Christians say a lot of times. I don't get very much out of church, and so I don't like church. It's not practical for me. It's not useful for me. I can spend my time uh, in other ways. Now, the reason why that is such a problem... Well, it's covered in this passage that we're going to see today. But the reason why it's such a problem, and if you don't get anything else from this sermon, I want you to get this. You need to be firmly rooted and firmly established in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't just need a one-time salvation experience. You need to be rooted. You need to be grounded. You need to be established in Jesus. Why do you need to be established in Jesus? Because Hard times will come. Suffering will come. And when suffering comes, if you do not have the grounding in Jesus, you will be shaken and you could be blown off course completely. Now, God has given one primary means to you to, not, to be established and not be shaken. That's the church. That's why we're here. So let me read this for us. You'll see this in today's passage. um, Chapter 2, verses 17 through 3, 5. This is God's good and kind and gracious word to you today. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again... But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that, that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding his word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today, this life-giving word. And we pray that we all would receive life from it. Lord, I pray that you would proclaim Jesus to our hearts and that we would see you at work in our hearts and in our midst as a community. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, So we have four points today, so get ready, four points. Uh, And if you're um, the outlining type, here's those four points. I'll give them to you at the beginning. First of all, Satan is real. That's the first point. Secondly, you are the glory of your pastor, okay? Satan is real. uh, First of all, Satan is real. Secondly, you are the glory of your pastor. Thirdly, suffering is coming. And then fourthly, you will be tempted, okay? So first of all, Satan is real. Uh, and look, before I go any further, uh, Ligon Duncan, who is one of my professors, who um, is the chancellor of RTS Jackson, um, I got this outline from him. So I'm essentially using his outline for this passage. I appreciate his uh, his sermon on this passage. And if you want to hear a good sermon on it, I'll tell you. But I'll tell you where to find it afterwards. So um, that was a joke, guys. Okay. First of all, Satan is real. Um, if if I were to do a movie about Satan, it would essentially be titled, Satan, a success story. Uh, Because what Satan has done, more than anything else, is he's done a great job of fooling us that he does not exist. Um, And I find that I've been guilty of downplaying his presence or his existence uh, over the years. And and I think over the last year, I've mentioned Satan more uh, than I did over the previous eight years of my ministry here. Um, And it's because the reality of Satan, the longer I'm in ministry, the more I recognize he is at work in this world. He is a real and a personal being who is doing two things. He is actively trying to thwart the plan of God. And so you see that here in verse uh, verse 18 where Paul says he wanted to come back and go back to the Thessalonians. Um, It was a young church. He wanted to get back there, but he couldn't. Why couldn't he get there? Because Satan was stopping him. So Satan actively attempts to thwart God's plan. And he does that in order to do the second thing, to shipwreck Christians. Satan is primarily concerned, not with everything that's happening out in the world, but he's primarily concerned with thwarting God's plan and shipwrecking Christians. That means he has his sights set on us who believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, And the reality is you don't have to look very far in this world in order to see his, his presence and his work. Just about every week, for example, you'll hear things in the news about something called satanic ritual abuse. And as a pastor, it's something that I'm becoming more and more familiar with because it's real. And more and more people are being exposed to satanic ritual abuse. And I say this with fear and trepidation because even members of our government have been perpetuating that sort of stuff. We have to be vigilant. We have to be careful. Satan is real, and he's trying to disguise himself. But because Satan is real does not mean we have to be afraid of him or in fear of him. We sing every Reformation Sunday that we had a couple weeks ago, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And Martin Luther, when he wrote that, he wrote that to say and to remind people uh, that, you know, we have this great and incredible foe, and, you know, and he is fighting against us, but we tremble not for him because one little word will fail him. And that little word is Jesus. Jesus has overcome Satan. Now Satan is persistent in his attacks. And especially where the gospel is going forth. Where the gospel is doing its work. Satan is attacking. But we do, And we need to remember that. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood. But we also need to remember that the battle belongs to the Lord. Jesus is winning and has won. But it is still a battle, isn't it? And... You and I, as Christians, are the battleground. We need to be aware of that. We need to know it. And that is why you need to be established in the gospel. Satan is real. Secondly, Paul says here something really interesting. He says that these Christians are the crown and the joy and the glory. Of Paul. That Paul says, they are his crown and joy and glory. And that is an amazing thing that he says. Look in verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Last week we saw Paul's uh, manner of ministry. He was like a parent. Before the Thessalonians and today we get to see his motivation for ministry. Why does he do what he does? Now he does it for the glory of God. Um, This is something that every Presbyterian should know. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, Paul, as as a very good Presbyterian, would have said that very well. He would have said yes. The, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Paul's primary motivation is the glory of God. But he says also in doing the ministry, the ones that he is ministering to, they are his glory. They are his joy. Um, he does it because he sees the pro- production or the product of his work in, in the transformation of souls. People leaving darkness and going and being transferred into light um, and he says he's like a shepherd. He's like a shepherd who is working for a master. And he's shepherding the master's sheep. And then every every couple times a year, what does he have to do? He has to bring the sheep back for inspection so that the master can make sure that the, the, the shepherd is doing his work. And that's what Paul says. He is like a proud shepherd who is presenting the, his sheep to the master. And every time the master says, good job, good job, look at this one. Look how fat and plump this sheep is. He gets proud about that because that's the work of the shepherd. He wants the approval of the master. Now, um, when I was in seminary for a time, uh, even before seminary and even after seminary for a little time, I worked in a coffee shop. If you don't know that, that's what I did. Uh, And it was the second greatest job that I had. It was wonderful because I could go to work, and, and a customer would drive up. They would order a cup of coffee, and 30 seconds later, I could produce for them an incredible cup of coffee. Right? I could pull the shot of espresso. I could perfectly froth the milk. I could sweeten it just to their exact specifications. I could give them the cup of coffee. They could take a sip, and I could see right away that I had done A good job. It was a great job to have for somebody that needs the instant feedback that they are doing a good job. I loved it. Every 30 seconds you got that kind of feedback. Um, And I was good at making lattes and cappuccinos. I was really good at it. Um, Ministry is in some ways like that. Um, But here's the thing. You are my cup of coffee. Okay, All of you that are sitting here are my cup of coffee. And I've been given the task by Jesus Christ to craft you, not into the image of the perfect cup of coffee, but into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the task that he's given to me. You know what the problem with that is? It takes a lot more than 30 seconds to make you into Jesus Christ. Some I've been here nine years, going on ten years. Can you believe that? And some of you are nowhere near to being the perfect cup of coffee that you need to be. But I just want you to understand something. You are my glory and my joy. You are my glory and my joy. As I minister to you and I get to see the way that Jesus is the one that is transforming your heart and making you into his image. I get to delight in that. Now why do you need to be established? Why should you be grounded if for no other reason, do it for me. <laughs> do it for me. Because this is my work. You are my work. And I want you to be more like Christ. So if I can be completely selfish, do, be established in, in Jesus. Do the work of the church with me so that I can enjoy and glory in you. All right. So that's the second thing. You are my crown and joy. Thirdly, suffering is coming. Why should you be established? Because suffering is coming. Look in verses 1 through 3. Paul says he couldn't go to the Thessalonians. So what does he do? He sends Timothy. For whatever reason, Satan is hindering him from going. And so he sends Timothy. He's basically left alone. Um, He's left alone and and he couldn't bear it any longer. He sent Timothy. But he says, um, verse 3, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourself know that we are destined for this. I talk about suffering every single week. I talk about suffering every week from the pulpit because the Bible talks about suffering. And you cannot open your Bible to any page without reading About suffering. The Bible, in some sense, in one sense, is all about suffering. Now it's not the American dream to suffer. I know that. As a matter of fact, the American dream is to eliminate as much suffering as possible, to be as in much control of your life, to keep suffering at bay, and to not involve yourself with anyone else's suffering. Uh, That's kind of the American dream. And, And unfortunately for us, we've gotten very good at reaching the American dream. Because most of us are really good at managing just how much suffering comes into our lives. Now the problem with that is it's setting us up for a massive problem. Because the Lord is going to give you suffering. He's going to give you periods and times of suffering. And he's going to remind you that you really do not have control over your life. And this, is, this next part is really important for you to hear. Why do we suffer? Paul tells us why we suffer and why I need to talk to you about suffering so much. He does not say that, that suffering is an accident of history he does not say that he suffers persecution. Remember, he was beaten and abused and left for dead on numerous occasions. He was arrested and all of these things. He suffered persecution. But Why does he suffer? It's not an accident that it happens. It's not as though God was turned away from Paul for a moment and and then things just happened apart from God's uh, view. And he does not say notice that He is persecuted or he is suffering or the Thessalonians are suffering because an evil spirit is in charge of that suffering. Why does he suffer? Look, he says, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. You need to understand that suffering comes into your life because God wants to bring suffering into your life. Now, me saying that does not make it easier to hear. I recognize it. But Paul understood that he suffered because God was sovereign and in control over all of the events of his life. And God had appointed a period of suffering for Paul. And when did he do it? He did it before the foundations of the world. God had prepared for Paul and for every Christian times of suffering. And you and I need to suffer. Because if we don't, we begin to think things like most Americans think, that we're in control, that we have it all figured out, that we are successful, that we can do it on our own. And what God does in bringing suffering into our lives is he causes us to cling less and less to the things of the world and more and more into the only thing that matters, and that's Jesus Christ himself. God uses suffering to reveal what you're really trusting in. He reveals what you're really trusting in. He, he uses suffering to help you lessen your grip on the temporary things of the world. And he helps you to, to cling more tightly on the eternal things. Be assured with, in your suffering. And I know that some of you are going through a period of suffering now. Be assured God is working. He's working it out for you. And this world is not in chaos. Go to him. Tell him about your suffering. He listens, he knows, and it's for your good that he brought it into your life. Why do you need to be established in the gospel? Suffering is coming. And if you are not established, you will be tossed back and forth. You need to be established. Suffering is coming. Thirdly, or fourthly, I'm sorry. I'm used to saying the the last point is the third one. So, The fourth point in verses 4 and 5 you need to be established because you will be tempted. Paul talks again about Satan. Except now he doesn't he doesn't mention his name, he talks about him in, in terms of what he does. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Paul brings up Satan again. And he identifies him by the work that he does. This is one of the things that Satan does. He Satan will tempt God's people in order to drag us away from God. Because here's what happened. We just talked about Satan. Satan sees your suffering. Satan sees the hard time that you're going through. And what does he want to do? He wants to drag you away from from Christ. And so he will come to you and he will lie to you. He's going to lie to you. He will tell you things like this. If you're suffering, God doesn't really love you. That if you're going through a hard time, you have done something wrong and you have brought it on yourself. Satan is a liar. And he will tell you that God is so weak that he can't do anything to help you. Those are three lies that Satan will tell you. And if you don't believe me, you don't have to look any further than when Jesus went into the wilderness and was tempted by Satan himself. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, was tempted by Satan. What did Satan do? He lied to him. What Satan did was he promised that Jesus could have a crown of glory without going through suffering. That's what Satan offered to Jesus. He lied to Jesus about who was really in control. He essentially said, Jesus, I have the right to give you all of, the, all of the, the nations of the world and I'll just give them to you because I'm such a nice guy. That's what Satan said to Jesus. If Satan tried that with the second person of the Trinity who has existed into eternity, who is our Lord and Savior, don't you think he's going to try it with us? He is a tempter. He is trying to drag you away from Jesus Christ. So how do you overcome the tempter? We need to be established in the good news of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do when he was tempted? What did Jesus do whenever Satan came to him and lied to him? Well, Jesus didn't say, I'm the second person of the Trinity. I know you're lying. Get away from me. You know what Jesus did? He quoted scripture back to Satan. He actually quoted three passages from the book of Deuteronomy, from the Old Testament. Okay? You can go to the Old Testament and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Jesus quoted scripture to get rid of the tempter. How will you be established in the gospel? Well, you have to know your your scriptures. You have incredible resources at your disposal to not believe the lie that Satan tells you. He has given us his word. And it's in the church where the Word of God is expounded and communicated. It's through the church that you can come with fellow Christians and share your life together and hear the Word of God, to be encouraged in the Word of God, to be exhorted in the Word of God, to grow up into the full measure of who God wants you to be. In conclusion, here's the thing. Um, You need to know the truth about who you really are. You are not strong you are not able to do things on your own. You, you can't do it. You don't need to believe that lie about yourself. That's another lie that Satan will tell us. That we can do things on our own. That we don't need help. Now the truth is, and the reason why you need to come to church is because I'm more than happy to tell you that you are a pathetic, rotten sinner every single week. <laughs> I don't really like telling you that, but it's just the truth. You need to know who you really are. You're weak. You're not able to do it on your own. But Jesus is for you. That Jesus delights in you. There's one passage that I go to all over, uh, that I go over and over uh, to. Um, It's in the Old Testament. It's it's this obscure passage. um, And it's one that uh, it's hard to find because it's in the minor prophets. And I'm going to get there (laughs) sooner or later. Um, Zephaniah. Chapter 3, verse 17. This is what Zephaniah says. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will say. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Zephaniah says that to a people who are suffering, who are in exile, who feel so far away from God that God doesn't care about them. And he says, no, the Lord your God is in your midst, even in your suffering, even in the hard times. And he's a mighty one who will save. He rejoices over you with gladness. Do you know that? That Jesus rejoices over you right now. How does he rejoice over you? Well, at this weird point, he says, he will quiet you by his love. And he will exult over you with a lot loud singing. That Jesus today is so pleased with you. Not because you're so great, but because he has been great for you. That he is so pleased with you that he actually sings over you. Like a mom or dad singing over the crib of a baby. Just delighting in the presence of that baby. That's how Jesus thinks about you. Isn't that glorious? You need to be established in the gospel. Because the only place that you will hear how much Jesus loves you is the church. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for your servants who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to us. We pray, Father, that we would be established in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would be pleased with us today, not because of our righteousness, for indeed there is no righteousness in us that can please you, but only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, by His finished work and the work of the Spirit. We pray that all of us would be found in Him. If there are anyone here who are hurting uh, and are going through suffering, Lord, You know it. You indeed are in control of it. We pray that You would uh, that you would give them relief from that suffering, but also that You would use it for all the things that You have promised to do by it, that You would have them cling less and less to the temporary things of the world, but that they would cling more and more. And to the glory and the glorious person of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. We're going to.